The first words spoken by a human being in the Bible are between a man and a woman. Adam wakes up from a deep sleep, looks at Eve, and gives voice to the profound, inseparable connection between himself and the partner God had made for him. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The author of Genesis takes Adam's words and uses them to underscore the primacy of their union over every other human connection. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is one of many human relationships used in the Bible to point to a greater, more enduring spiritual reality. We are our siblings in the Lord because Jesus is our older brother. We're children of God. We pray to God our Father. Jesus is the bridegroom, and we are his bride. Moses, the prophets, the Psalter, Paul, our Lord himself, they use familial imagery as a symbol or a picture to describe our relationship with God. Sometimes this imagery goes in places we don't expect. And this is perhaps nowhere truer than in the book of Hosea. Almost all prophecy in the Bible starts with God giving someone something to say. I think that Hosea is the only prophet whose ministry begins with the command to do something. Namely, to marry. Hosea's message was going to be his family life. In the words of uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne from The Scarlet Letter, a living hieroglyphic. This morning, we're going to work through chapter one, we just heard. And this is a challenging text for a couple of reasons. It unapologetically describes the persistence and the damage of sin, how it ruins our most important relationships. But my hope is that if we take a close look at Hosea's personal life, we'll go straight into the heart of the God that we worship. Hosea shows us God's free, sovereign, and long-suffering love. Now to get there, I want to say, a word about an unfaithful spouse, a broken home, and a family reunion. First, an unfaithful spouse. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord so Hosea married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim. This is a straightforward third-person narrative, but it has puzzled readers for centuries. What is the nature of Gomer's promiscuity? Does it refer to her actual, like, scandalous behavior? 
are only her capacity for such behavior. Would God really command a prophet to marry a prostitute? It seems like against the rules. Our Homer, Homer, I did that so many times today. Can I just refer to Homer as their collective unit? Hosea and Gomer. It's more the Simpsons than Greek poetry for what it's worth. Were they permis- was Gomer promiscuous before they got married or only after? There's a lot of people and very respected and serious scholars, or even someone like John Calvin, thought, you know, this story probably didn't happen at all. It must be an allegory because it's so scandalous and seems such in conflict with what God sells elsewhere. But there's a lot of extraneous historical detail in this story that makes me think and makes a lot of people think that this really did indeed happen. And because the message of Hosea, the prophet, is built on the example of a husband who's morally pure, reprimanding and reconciling with a woman who's been essentially deemed a harlot, it's undeniable that people have used passages like this in bad ways. But doing so, I think it misses the point entirely. Because this book is not really about Gomer. We don't know anything about her, and she disappears after chapter 3. It's not really about Hosea either. We don't know anything about him. There are no romanticized, poetic description of Hosea's saintly, selfless suffering. We're not invited to draw analogies between his experience of brokenheartedness and ours. The emphasis is not really on Hosea and Gomer at all. It's on the land the people of Israel, and their wayward hearts. The point of this unlikely marriage is to draw vivid attention to the people who were guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. It's the people of God who are the truly promiscuous ones, the unfaithful spouse. They're indiscriminate and undisciplined in their loves And the first thing I want to say is that their adultery was not just a metaphor. God's people had entered into a covenant relationship with him. And just like the covenant of marriage, this relationship was to be characterized by intimacy and honesty and unwavering fidelity. But in the very place where that worship and loyalty was to be performed, they had erected altars and offered sacrifices to rival gods. Centuries later, God delivered a similar accusation through the prophet uh, Jeremiah. I remember the devotion of your youth, the Lord says. How as a bride, you loved me. And followed me. What fault did you find with me that you strayed so far from me, following worthless idols and becoming worthless yourself? So, what I want to point out here in this first header is the idea of thinking about our sin through the language of adultery, our unfaithfulness. That in our brokenness, we are no different than the promiscuous woman of Hosea chapter 1. That sin is not merely breaching a contract 
or breaking a rule or missing the mark. It's a kind of unfaithfulness, a defection from the God-given ends of our hearts and bodies. We might say that the book of Hosea reminds us that in the eyes of God, there's no such thing as religious singleness. We're either faithful in our covenant relationship or we're promiscuous. That was Israel's story and it's ours. They built houses of worship and we build houses of worship. And they look a bit different, of course, but they're no less real. I was reminded this week of a quote, or a, I don't know what you call it, it was a speech, by the writer uh, David Foster Wallace. He didn't consider himself a Christian, but he said something quite remarkable about the inevitability of worship. And from a Christian lens, we might say the inevitability of idolatry. Here's what he said. Here's something weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the cruel thing about worshiping the wrong things, and he uses examples like money or power or intelligence or beauty, what's cruel about them is not that they're evil or sinful, is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. He uses the language of your idol is what you tap for meaning, the fire you warm yourself by. Hosea, he marries a promiscuous woman, and it was a public sign that God's covenant people had roving eyes. They were an unfaithful spouse. And it's a simple reminder for us that we, too, as the bride of Christ, are in danger of being unfaithful, that our weak and disordered love can weaken or even destroy our marriage. Unfaithful spouse. One of my favorite parts of my work week, I guess you could say my week in general, is uh, on Sunday mornings when the kids, who belong to a lot of you, come up for Holy Communion, and me and Peter will pray for them. And we oftentimes, it may not seem like it to you, but I try to memorize their names so we can pray a blessing for, some of you are laughing because I've gotten the names wrong several times. (laughs) I said, be bold, it's better to make a mistake. Uh, Because it feels personal, obviously. And uh, what I've noticed is there are a lot of uh, memorable, striking names at Church of the Cross for children. Uh, but they're nothing like the names of Hosea and Gomer's kids. <laughs> uh, another, another quote from Nathaniel Hawthorne, they are scarlet letters endowed with life. Jezreel is the name of the firstborn. He's a son. And it could be literally translated, God sows, like S-O-W, seed. And its meaning is more ambiguous than ominous. Jezreel Uh, was the name of both a city and a fertile valley in northern Israel. I'm from Los Angeles. It'd be the equivalent of naming my son Bakersfield. (laughs) But God explains why this name is appropriate. 
Years before Hosea, there was a commander in Israel's army named Jehu. And he had ascended to the throne of Israel by wiping out the royal houses of Israel in Judah in the city of Jezreel. God had called Jehu to be king, but the treachery and the savagery he demonstrated when he took the throne was remembered before God and perhaps had continued in future generations. The name Jezreel announced that that line of Jehu, whom the current king, Jeroboam II, was a part of, would come to an end. God promises to break Israel's bow. And there's a sting in the tale of that prophecy. Because throughout the Bible, I think of Psalm 46, for example, this notion of God breaking the bow was something that God did on behalf of Israel. It meant, I'm coming to your rescue. But here, it's the bow of Israel that God would break. And so what this name represents in like 10,000 foot view is God withdrawing his promise of protection. Well, it goes from bad to worse with Lo Ruhamah. Her name means not loved or no mercy. She would be a sign that God would no longer have mercy upon his children. He would not forgive them at all. And that verb, to love or, or to show mercy, it's not just an emotion. It gets at that profound identification that parents experience with their children. It's why a parent will show no hesitation in responding to their children in times of distress or pain. It's like a reflex. It's an instinct. There's a very famous verse. It's like on refrigerators and stuff. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? And the promise that God would show compassion, would have mercy to the children of Israel, was foundational to their whole self-understanding as a people the nation of Israel was founded upon that very promise, God appearing to Moses on Mount Sinai, declaring his name, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Those words, they functioned like a signed blank check to the people. It gave them credence to come before God and lay claim to his forgiveness and mercy, to ask for the forgiveness of their sins. Lo Ruhamah, Hosea and Gomer's second child, it's God voiding that check, annulling that promise. So the father's protection and the father's mercy have been withdrawn. On Thursday, I left uh, our apartment at like 5 p.m. for a bike ride. And the sky was gray, but it was, looked all right. There was no radar chance, whatever. I rode to this race course, and 30 minutes later, it was cloudy. 15 minutes later, it was gray. 20 minutes later, I was racing my bike through what felt like a splash pad. And that same sense of escalation pervades our text. Each child's name speaks of a yet stronger judgment. 
A few years after Lo Ruhama, Gomer gives birth to Lo Ami. And if the first two kids signaled that the benefits of God's covenant were being withdrawn, this final child represents the covenant being broken. His name means not my people. It's like the foundational promise of the, of the nation. I will, you will be my people and I will be your God. Sons and daughters hadn't simply removed themselves from the father's protection or from the promise of his care. They have lost the relationship entirely. Israel had been unfaithful and now her home was broken. They are like children of divorce. You know, the, the word no dominates Hosea 1, verse, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The people are reduced in numbers. The covenant has been dissolved. They're divided without a leader, denied the security and the blessing of having a place in the world. But God is determined to tell a better story. That is the foundation of our hope. God is determined to overcome his people's failures. God is determined to not let sin and judgment for unfaithfulness have the final word. And so verse 10 speaks to this future promise. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand of the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. It's shocking. There is no preparation or expectation or justification for the complete reversal of judgment. There's simply a declaration that it shall be. Generations and generations of unfaithfulness and the consequences thereof are undone with a few simple Words. This is what I said at the outset. This is God's completely free, sovereign, gratuitous love. It's the picture of a people so broken, so constrained, so helpless. They have no capacity to participate, join, even ask for forgiveness. It's God in his free, sovereign love breaking down doors of obstinacy and opening up his children, his beloved people, to a gracious, wonderful future. I want to point out just two elements of this final section. First is this language of Israel and Judah coming up out of the land. I think it's in verse 11. They'll be united, they'll appoint for themselves a leader, and then they will come up out of the land. This is a strange phrase, and scholars don't really know what to make of it. Does it refer to a return from exile, like the kind of a homecoming? Does it refer to a military conquest coming up in victory? That word, it also has like agricultural connotations. To come up out of the land could mean to grow to sprout, to increase. On the day of judgment, Israel was a desiccated vine. 
cut down and cast out of the garden. But here we see those dormant seeds coming up out of the earth and beginning to flourish. It's a promise, in other words, of resurrection life. And it's the same language used in a pretty famous passage in Ezekiel, the valley of dry bones. This is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up out of them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. I will settle you in your own land. So first, this coming up out of the land. Second, the names themselves. Hosea and Gomer's children were walking placards. But lo, Ami is now a child of the living God. Lo, Ruhamah is my loved one. Jezreel now stands for a great day of victory, not Bakersfield. And did you notice the specificity of the redemption promised in the same place where the children receive names of disgrace, they are now honored. The same place that once um, was related to shame and disgrace and failure has been transformed into a place of honor and nobility and strength. It's a beautiful picture of how oftentimes the places in our life that are the most hurtful, are disappointing, are embittering, can become the very places where God's redemption is most wonderfully tasted and appreciated. And in 2.1, which we didn't read, which I frankly thought we were, but uh, there's this idea of the siblings of Lo-Ami and Lo-Ruhamah saying, my brothers, my sisters, it's human voices attesting to what God has done. It's this unfaithful spouse in a broken home being reunited and flourishing under God's wonderful, gracious reign. The Bible, as I said, starts with a man and a woman and their profound connection. And you could say the whole story of the Bible is the challenge of these two people relating well. And this, in some ways, is a low point. But the Bible ends the final words spoken by human beings in the Bible is human beings called the bride of Christ, partnering or in union with the Holy Spirit, inviting their bridegroom to come. It's a profound message of hope. And it says to us that even in our, at our worst day, God is right there ready to break in and redeem us. We pray for us. Lord, we, we thank you for the hope that you offer us through the strange message of the prophet Hosea. And I pray, Lord, to whatever way, to whatever degree we've been named not lovable, a failure, a disappointment, to whatever degree names of, of shame and disgrace have been attached to us, I pray that today, Lord, by the power of your word, you would rename us children of the living God, beloved, that we would feel the power 
and the wonder of what you make true of us in Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. Amen.